I did five on Thursday, and I have got an action-packed Rock'em Sock'em show for you. So, come on in. Let me, as you um, and I settle down together, just make sure that this is broadcasting on my other social media platforms. And then once I do that, we'll just get right to it. I know, um, let me turn this volume down. I know that um, probably many of you are here to um, hear what I have to say about Brother Cube. So I'm not going to belabor that point. I'm going to um, start off with that. But I also want to uh, update you on several police incidents. There are several police, either police fatal shootings or uh, law enforcement uh, in-custody deaths that I want to talk to you about. And so I want to update you on what's going on because we're in this political climate. We're less than, what, 19 days away from election day, right? But I'm, I'm hearing from the pundits that every day is election day right now because folks are voting and they are voting in record numbers. Now, I don't know what that means, but I don't want you guys to be complacent, those of you who are inclined to vote, because I know some of my kinfolk, you know, not really um, about that life, right? Y'all y'all don't want to waste your vote. But a no vote is a waste, just so you know. But nonetheless, people are voting in record numbers, and I don't know who's voting. I don't know if it's Democrats or Republicans or independents. I don't know, but folks are voting in record numbers. And so um, know this, because uh, it's being talked about, so that nobody loses their collective shit on the day of the election, November 3rd. It's going to take... It'll probably be election week, maybe even election month, before uh, the races are called in all 50 states. Some states are not even going to start counting ballots until election day, November 3rd, official election day. And so uh, we may not know in some of those critical um, states whether or not, um, you know, it's a done deal. So um, don't be swayed. Don't be discouraged. If you um, don't hear what you need to hear on November 3rd, because we may not hear until, you know, hell, December 3rd, I don't know. This is a crazy season, and we just need to be prepared for, um, for everything. So having said that, um, having said that, welcome. Now, let me start right away. Let me say hello to a few folks. Um, Hey, Karen. Hey, Daryl. Um, DB, what's up? Welcome, DB. Uh, we were just together last night virtually, and so I'm happy to see you back here <clears throat> tuning in to see what I have to say. Hey, Loretta, what's up? I wanted to um, I want to talk to you about the Jonathan Price fatal police shooting in um, Texas, Wolf City, Texas. Uh, I understand that Brother Price was buried on last weekend. I also want to update you on the Ronnell Foster, Willie McCoy fatal police shooting up in Vallejo, California. Um, there are a couple of other in uh, Dennis Plowden in Louisiana. There is so much. It's hard. It is really hard to keep track. I do my best, and thank you guys for helping me stay abreast of all of these incidents because I can't as just, you know, me by myself keep up with all of this. So those of you who send me little um, private messages, DMs, IMs, emails, I appreciate all of that. I want to update you on what's going on uh, with the Daniel Prude case 
brother who was killed in Rochester, New York. So there's a lot of stuff I want to update you on because now that we're in this crazy time, and it's going to be crazy right up until inauguration, I believe, 2021. And so I think that there's going to be some um, stuff that's just not going to get talked about anymore. You know how it is. You guys have already changed channels. They know they're watching you. They know that you're not paying attention. And so what was important to us a week ago, two weeks ago, they think is not important to us right now. So they're not talking about it. I'll talk about it if things are posted that I can get to and share with you because I think it's important for these family members. You guys can change channels. They don't get to do that. So um, some of the things that I'm going to be sharing with you. Hey, um, Daryl, so you're calling from uh, Pine Tops, Pine Tops, North Carolina. Hey, uh, Loretta, you're calling from Texas. Good looking out. I appreciate you guys joining me. Um, you know, these families don't get to change channels. This is something that they deal with forevermore, right? And so uh, when you hear me say some stuff, if, 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 if you've got a pen and pad uh, with you as we're together, and you can write down someone who you might want to reach out to on behalf of the family and just say, hey, what's up? What are you guys doing? Because, listen, a lot of this stuff just gets shoved under the rug. You know how they do, unless it becomes a social media situation or something goes viral. If it doesn't go viral, then if they cannot report on it, they won't. And I'll tell you um, some instances where just that very thing happened and just show it, show you exactly how high up the very top, I always say the fish rots from the head, police chiefs, police commissioners. They're some of the main culprits um, in some of these fatal police encounters who are doing their level best to keep the community from finding out. And while now some places have body cam, they don't want to release it, and there's some emails that went back and forth over in um, Rochester about the murder of Daniel Cruz and how a brother man, because you know, all skinfolk ain't kinfolk, chief Laron Singletary was doing his level best for weeks to keep what happened to Daniel Prude a secret. And that's why Sister Girl, the mayor over there, showed him the door. is because he was trying to hide um, information relative to what actually killed, uh, how Mr. Prude actually died, because it wasn't just a drug overdose like they wanted us to believe. But we'll talk about that a little later. So let me just get right to this whole Ice Cube thing. And uh, then, if I can remind me, and if I don't, you remind me, I want to talk to you about the documentary 16 Shots that dealt with the fatal police shooting of Laquan McDonald in Chicago and all the brouhaha and everything that was found out after the fact because over there they, too, were hiding the ball. But let me just talk about, let me just talk a little bit about um, this whole Ice Cube situation. And so, you know, now he's doing damage control for real, for real. And he is uh, saying, you know, in all caps on Twitter with some expletives that he would ever support little Tink Tink. Well, you know, I think he got played. I think he should have known better. He should have known that uh, little Tink Tink would use him as a prop. And it's been reported today on uh, the readout with Joy Reid by one of the um, talking heads on her show that actually Biden's campaign had the same information given to them that Lil Tink Tink's campaign received with regards to the CBA, Contract for Black America, this program that Ice Cube has put forth, and so he thought it might make sense, I don't know why, 19 days out from an election, to give this to Lil Tink Tink, have a conversation with him. And you see, when Lil Tink Tink's people talked about it, they didn't mention nothing about that CBA. They said, oh, thank you for uh, 
to work with us on the platinum plan, whatever the hell that is. For all I know, the platinum plan could have something to do with a whole bunch of ships <laughs> that they're planning on putting you and me and folks who look like us back on, right? So, Ice Cube made a decision, he made a judgment call, and he had a conversation with them, and the first thing that little Ting Ting did was got in front of a bank of cameras and said, hey, uh, Cube, Mr. Cube, thank you for uh, agreeing to work with us. Now, I don't know if that's what he agreed to do, but he got got because he met with him. He gave him some information, and you know, just like I know, that this guy, little Ting Ting, is a narcissistic, pathological liar, card-carrying Klansman, allegedly, certainly supporter of KKK, the good people, you know. Yeah, so giving him anything is really moot because it's not like he's going to do anything with, with what you gave him, Mr. Cube. <laughs> he's had three and a half years to deal with us. If he had an appetite to do that, Mr. Cube, and so you went over there and you had a fireside chat with him and you gave him some documentation. And then he got on TV and said, hey, Cube, thanks, as if to infer that somehow that wasn't a tacit endorsement of him. And so you should have known better, Mr. Cube. I don't know how you got caught lunching like that. But nonetheless, now we know he's in damage control. And so I had an opportunity to talk um, with uh, some of you in the shop last night about at least a portion of the CBA contract, the areas that dealt with police reform, because I try to stay in my lane. So when I looked at the things that um, he was purport purporting to request, because all he's doing is asking, ain't nobody got to, you know, abide by any of this stuff that's in his CBA. But the things that he Cube, talked about in regards to police reform, a lot of it was stuff that we already do. A lot of it was stuff that uh, police departments are not going to do. And some of it was stuff that just, you know, it, it just, it's, it's not going to stop the things that what I'm hearing from people who've lost loved ones and family members uh, who have uh, folks who've been hurt by the police is, you know, officer accountability. I don't know why these politicians on both sides of the aisle will talk about doing everything but holding an officer accountable because I can tell you what I know as a patrol officer and as a patrol supervisor for 20 years that the things that they're proposing, it's not going to change how I think. It's not going to change what I do when I put on that uniform and get in a patrol car. I don't give a damn if you reallocate resources. I don't give a damn if you um, – prevent officers from working overtime. I don't care if you send out a crisis intervention team like LAPD is about to do. And we had that back in the day. We had pet officers, um, uh, no, MEU. Well, pet and MEU, medical evaluation unit, is where the pet officers worked. And when you had someone who was having a mental episode, you could call them to come out and have a dialogue. But the problem with that is if I'm out in patrol, and I see a car do a California stop, and I want to issue you a citation, and I stop you for not stopping four-wheel lock stop at a stop sign, and you're bipolar, I'm not calling a medical crisis intervention team. I'm going to deal with you right then and there. And so while some of you, uh, some of the activists may think that that's a good thing, and police chiefs who are very savvy, and I'll explain some of that to you in a little bit, they know, they already know that none of that is going to change what an officer does. And they already know 
that when an officer kills you, that they're going to minimize and mitigate it. They're going to circle the wagons. They're going to explain it away, whether it's on video cam or not. So they'll agree to it, maybe. So I don't know who Mr. Cube talked to when he was putting together the portion that deals with police reform. Cube, I'm here if you want to reach out. I'll help you with the things that you have to be on the department to know to ask for. Hit me up. I'll help you. So as I'm reading all of this stuff, I'm, I'm understanding because I, I know the lingo and I, and I know double talk, company speak when I hear it from police chiefs and others. So I was just like, dude, you, you blew it by meeting with Tink Tink and even discussing this with him because, first of all, he doesn't have the authority to do it. I'm going to talk about how much power police chiefs have and how little uh, folks can rein them in. I mentioned in my podcast, which dropped today, um, should have dropped yesterday, but I was a little busy, and so um, I was late getting it to my producer, but I talked about a uh, bill that Governor Newsom just signed here in California that will give our independent civilian review board, the police commission, subpoena powers. So that's cool. I mean, I say I don't say no to anything. Subpoena powers are good. It gives um, the police commission the opportunity to get stuff if folks respond to the subpoena. I can tell you this, that having subpoena power don't necessarily mean that the person you subpoena, uh, you serve a subpoena on for records is going to respond. When I worked at LAUSD in the Office of the Inspector General, we had subpoena power. I would issue subpoenas to banks for records because someone was accused of theft, and then the banks would just laugh at me. <laughs> they were like, I'm not giving you that. I don't have time. I'm over here doing the Lord's work. And guess what? There was nothing I could do because I was a civilian, much like our civilian review board. And so, again, I don't say no to, to anything, but I just want you guys to know that civilian review boards don't really have any teeth. And even if they get a subpoena and they get all these records and they tell a police chief like ours did a couple of years ago in the fatal shooting of Ezell Ford, Charlie Beck, that they had a problem with the use of deadly force, Charlie Beck said, okay, thank you. <laughs> and then he went up to the top of the administration building and made a video, uh, made an audio recording for his officers saying, hey, I got you. I got you. I know that the police commission had a problem with that shooting, but I got you. And so that's the kind of power that police chiefs have. Um, I'm not sure if I'll be able to get to all of your questions because it's kind of scrolling quickly, and I don't want to have a senior moment and lose my train of thought. But if you ask me something and I didn't, and I and I don't respond, just put it in the comments again, and I'll try to get back. Um, Okay, Perry, you said uh, he's continuing the conversation with both parties, and the black community will, ooh, you guys are, the black community will no longer be taken for granted. Okay. Uh, I respect Ice Cube more than I respect the Democrats. Okay, good for you, sir, ma'am, whoever you are. Um, I think in this case, we should encourage and advise him and make that plan better. I'm with you. I'm all about making it better, and that's why I said, you know, Cube, reach out. I'll, I'll tell you the words to say, the questions to ask so that you get those things that are important in your CBA. Uh, Glenn, you said it's not, uh, he didn't get played, it sounds ridiculous. I think I got on the wrong shirt tonight. I need to have my, your agreement is not required. <laughs> yeah, I think I got, I think I got the wrong shirt on. Okay, so anyway, um, that's,
about the whole Ice Cube thing because, um, you know, I don't say no to anything, but to me, it was chink chink for me, for me, you know, for me. And your agreement is not required. Be clear, understand. Uh, your agreement is not required um, because chink chink is a pathological liar and a sociopath, and he's not going to keep his word. He has not with anyone, and he certainly is not going to keep his word to Ice Cube about anything that's going to benefit us. His record uh, speaks volumes as to what he's done in the past, what he hasn't done in the past, and what you can probably expect if he's given another four-year term. We haven't seen anything come out of that Justice Department in terms of a civil rights investigation for anyone who's been killed by, errant po by an errant police officer during his uh, tenure. As a matter of fact, Bill Barr waited until the 11th hour on the five-year anniversary of Eric Garner having been choked to death to come out and say at 12 o'clock noon that, yeah, guess what? I'm not going to investigate Daniel Pantaleo. So there, there's that. And I mean, there's a litany of other names of folks who have lost their life since Eric Garner in June, July of 2014. And not A1, not A1 has been investigated under the administration of Little Ting Ting and Bill Barr. And so that's not going to change. But listen, keep hope alive. Your agreement is not required. So that's what I have to say about that. Now, let me um, talk to you. Let me move on and talk to you about um, Daniel Cruz's death. That's the black man mentally ill in Rochester, New York. And what happened is that now, recently, a lot of email transmissions have been released between the police chief, Leron Singletary, and his uh, deputy, I think one of uh, his deputy, one of his lieutenants, very high up officials within the Rochester Police Department because Daniel Cruz was uh, killed when they put a spit hood over his head and then one of the officers uh, put pressure on his upper torso and wound up suffocating him. Well, what Leron Singletary, a black man, the police chief, said is that it was just a it was just a simple overdose no big deal nothing to see here now we know that there were emails going back and it's reported that there were dozens of emails police reports and internal and internal reviews that revealed an array of delay tactics by the police chief delay tactics in reporting what really happened uh, from citing hospital privacy laws to blaming an overworked employee's backlog in processing videos as to why they were not releasing the video relative to the whole spit hood um, death of suffocation death of Daniel Cruz. Now, Leron Singletary saw that video. He knew exactly what had happened in that incident, and they were trying to keep it from coming forward. The family was doing all kinds of um, paperwork submission. FOIA, asking for information, and they were like, stall, stall, stall. You know what they do when they don't want to give up information. They'll say that uh, the investigation is ongoing. Um, we don't want to interfere with a possible criminal arrest that could occur, whether that's even a real thing. That's what police chiefs say to prevent you, the public, from seeing what happened. And so they, they were successful up until a point, and then they had to go ahead and give it up and release the information regarding Daniel Cruz. Says the documents that are now being released show how the police attempted to frame a narrative in the very early hours of Mr. Cruz's um, potential 
for danger, so they were dirtying him up like they do and glossing over the tactics that the officers used when they pinned him down naked and then put that spit hood on him um, before he stopped breathing. In one of the police reports, uh, the in the confrontation box, um, one of the police reports regarding the confrontation had a box where you indicate who this person is, right? And at first, Mr. Pood was listed as a victim. But then one of the officers or either some higher up said, oh, no, no, don't designate Daniel Prude as a victim. They said, refer to him as an individual, an individual, as if somehow there's a difference between victim and individual. The inference being, if he's a victim, that means somebody did something to him, and that wasn't what they wanted people to understand about Daniel Prude. Then they said, no, make him a suspect. Someone wrote somewhere in this documentation, no, make Daniel Prude a suspect because he's got to be guilty of something when they put hands on you and ultimately cause your death. The officer that was involved in uh, Mr. Prude's um, inability probably to take in air, his name is Vaughn, Officer Vaughn. And what happened with Officer Vaughn is that he was leaning, the way it's written, very heavily on Mr. Prude's head as they had him pinned down onto the ground. And it says that this officer Vaughn was in a push-up position. Oh no, he had Mr. Prude's head in a push-up position, and he held that position for about 68 seconds. Now, when they wrote up the report, the way they described it is they said um, Chief Singletary, the police chief, wrote in his report that actually Officer Vaughn uh, was trying to quote stabilize. Mr. Prude by holding him on the ground, stabilizing him. Code talk, double speak, company speak for. He had him pinned down on the ground with his body weight on top of him after they had put a hood on his head and Mr. Prude could not breathe. Very different from when a police chief says, oh no, my officers just, they were just trying to stabilize him, just keep him still on the ground. It wasn't what you think. That's what Chief Singletary wrote. And that, um, what police chiefs do. Circle the wagons. They knew this was going to be a big incident. Remember, this was right on the heels of the George Floyd murder by Derek Chauvin and his cohorts. And so they were concerned about any particular blowback from the community if they saw yet another video of another white man pressing his body weight on top of a black man to the extent that this person ultimately died. The other high-ranking official who was involved in this whole delay slash cover-up is named Mark Simmons, and his rank is deputy chief on the Rochester Police Department. And then there was a police lieutenant by the name of Michael Perkowski, who also had been sending emails back and forth to the city lawyer, a female by the name of Stephanie Prince. So listen, these are, these are, these are people with a lot of um, clout, if you will. City attorney, police lieutenant, deputy chief, police chief, all trying to figure out as best they can how to keep the Prude family from getting that video showing what actually happened to their loved one. And so now we know because it's, it's out, it's been released, and we know that the mayor, when she found out, she was not happy, and she sent Mr. Singletary to the cornfields. He lost his job. Uh, Simmons was ultimately, I believe, demoted to 
um, lieutenant, but then when Singletary was fired, they needed a chief, and so somebody promoted Simmons to interim. So he was a deputy chief, then he was a lieutenant, and now he's back as the interim police chief until they find a replacement for um, Laron Singletary. So that's the brouhaha over in Rochester Police Department. Now let me tell you what's going on on the Chicago Police Department. And um, Chicago Police Department had a, a meeting with several community members because they're under a consent, consent decree to do something different and better, right? Lots of stuff going on over there. And this community made a lot of recommendations, 155 different recommendations about when officers should use their taser, when they should use force on protesters, and the police chief on Chicago, for those of you who don't know, is more skinful, David Brown. Former Houston police chief, David Brown, who sent a robot into a building where a black man was holed up, allegedly, after he shot several Houston police officers. And David Brown sent in a robot carrying a bomb and blew the young man up. Okay, so David is over in Chicago. And, and him and, and the mayor, Lori Lightfoot, pretended like they were really interested in doing something different because that's what they do. There were 155 proposed changes to how police conduct themselves on the Chicago Police Department. And of those 155, only five of the proposed changes were actually accepted. Now, this community had been meeting and working with high-ups on the Chicago Police Department. They were meeting together, it says, weekly for months to help update the department's rules on how and when an officer can shoot their gun, use tasers or batons, and deal with um, protesters. During these weekly meetings, it would last for about three hours, and this started back in June. And so now they've just come out with this recommendation. And the community members are pissed because they spent a lot of time in good faith meeting with these people, thinking that they really did want to do something different, hold their officers accountable, that word that you'll never hear them utter, right? And now these members have found out that, you know what, not so much. They, they really don't seem to want to hold the officers accountable. This was an effort by the department to so-called increase community participation in policymaking. So note to self, if any of you have an opportunity to be a part of a focus group or some, some sort of, of body where you do sit down with police administrators to talk about quality of life issues, holding officers accountable, police reform, whatever it is that they want to dub it, be sure to ask um, you know, lots of follow-up questions. Listen to what they say with a very um, careful ear. Listen for company speak and code talk. And I'm going to tell you some of it that went on with the Chicago Police Department. So if you hear it being uttered by your police administrator, you'll know it and you'll call them on it. So again, this was to increase community participation in policymaking. And this was required by a court-enforced police reform plan, a.k.a. consent decree. Now the members who participated are calling it a sham. And here's why. There were um, several of Chicago Police Department's executive steering committee members who were meeting with these people, and this was the very senior leadership over at the police department. 
And of these members, there was 34 civilians that were on this group, part of this community group, 34 members, and they included activists, civil rights leaders, and politicians. Not one, not one law enforcement officer retired because obviously, you know, they've already got high-ranking uh, sworn officers who are participating. It would have been nice if they would have had a retired law enforcement officer. I know there's some over there on the East Coast because I know a couple of them, not necessarily on Chicago PD, but certainly some that they could have reached out to if they were really being honest about the change that they were pretending to want. But they didn't have any law enforcement. They had all these civilians, and now you've got these high-ranking officials who are used to um, speaking in a way that um, sounds good, sounds sexy, means nothing. And you've got civilians who are listening, and they're like, oh, okay, yeah, I hear what you're saying. Sounds like he wants to do the right thing, only to find out at the end of the process they were blowing smoke up their nether region, right? The changes that were actually made the five changes that were actually made, according to some of the members of this group, are they're saying it was technical in nature. And it basically, the changes that they agreed to make dealt with language, the language that's used in policy. For instance, in adding a definition uh, for the sanctity of life, when they talk about, you know, sanctity of life and what that means, um, there was a term that was already included in the existing force policy, but they didn't give, they didn't define what sanctity of life meant. And so I would imagine the community members, they let them have some say about, you tell me what does sanctity of life mean? And then they wrote it down as if it was, you know, given great import and had some real substance to what it was they were trying to prevent from happening in the future. The group members now know that that was BS. They also agreed to change the word when they write reports from subject to person when there's a use of force. So they are no longer going to refer to the person who was beaten up as a subject. They're going to refer to them as a person. And so listen to the company speak from Deputy Chief Ernest Cato. Ernest Cato says this. Changes to the language were important, and changes to the language in the use of force policy will send a clear message to officers. Send a clear message about what? To do what? To not do what? Because I'm describing that I just hit this person in the head with my flashlight seven times, but I call him a person and not a subject, and somehow that makes it more palatable. It's hard to um, really share this with you and keep a straight face, but I get what they were doing because, again, these are savvy administrators dealing with a community who is unknowing and unsuspecting and believing and trusting these administrators at their word because great deference is given to a police officer. Extreme deference is given to a police chief, a deputy chief, and so on and so forth. The other um, thing that this Deputy Chief Ernest Cato says that if you're taking the word subject out and you're making it a person, we're now humanizing that individual who we're encountering. So I think that's huge, according to the Deputy Chief. 
they're humanizing the person that they just assaulted. Cato was the co-chair of this working group, and he said further, now when every police officer has to write a report, they're going to say that person, not that subject. And somehow that's going to make a difference because they're going to be referring to a person who is a human being, and somehow that's going to make a difference when officers use deadly force. I promise you, as a patrol officer, whether I call them a person, a subject, a thing, it's not going to change my mindset. It's not going to change the reason why I put hands on that person in the first place, and it's certainly not going to deter me from doing it again when I encounter somebody else who pisses me off, and now I want to punish them because they piss me off. Call them what you want. I don't see how this is helpful, and now I think having read this proposal in its entirety, again, some of the 34, 36 members from the community are calling it a sham. I'm saying that they were being very disingenuous. Police chief, black man, David Brown, under the supervision of his mayor, because police serve at the pleasure of a mayor, and so she put this panel together, she, Lori Lightfoot, she put this panel together. She picked these 34 people, and it says that there was a, you know, uh, big dog and pony show when they named all the members of the group, and I'm sure they were all very proud to be a part of it and thought that they were going to be really making some headway in terms of the way Chicago PD treats the community. And so that means Lori Lightfoot is complicit. That means she's a partner in that crime. Anyway. There's a University of Chicago law professor named Greg Futterman, and he is uh, the one who's speaking out um, mostly with regards to this group because he was a member of it. And he says that the department also, in addition to the other 100-plus recommendations that they, made, that they made, the police department rejected recommendations that the city ban chokeholds. They rejected the recommendation that there be a limit as to when tasers can be used and require that all force be used only as a tactic of last resort. Well, the police chief, Lori Lightfoot, they weren't hearing any of that. So they're refusing to ban chokeholds on the Chicago Police Department. And I don't know what the big deal is because, to tell you the truth, again, as a patrol officer, if, if I'm really in fear for my life and I have the choice because a chokehold is right up there with deadly force, if I have a choice of choking you or shooting you, I'm not going to choke you. And, and most police officers wouldn't. Nobody's going to tie up with you to choke you out when the department says, hey, um, you can just shoot them. You know, I mean, you can choke them, but you can also shoot them. And so, yeah, again, if you're not listening and you're not understanding what it is they're telling you, it's very easy to think that they're doing you a solid and really they're not. So um, I think this was all set up the way that it was set up on purpose. And this is just yet another police department with a black man who's at the helm serves at the pleasure of a black woman who 
was pretending to want reform, accountability, and transparency on their police department, but is really doing very little to make that happen. One of the other things that was also rejected uh, from the community was that they wanted to prohibit the use of force against peaceful protesters. Police department administrators said, nope, not interested in that one either. Not interested in that one either. And what they were talking about with use of force is, against peaceful protesters, is spray, pepper spray, long range acoustic devices, and batons. They were wanting those to not be used against passively resisting protesters or use any of that to disperse crowds of protesters. And the police department said, no, we'll be tasing folks. We'll be using the, the long-range acoustic devices, and we'll be using our batons. So there's that. Not wanting to hold officers accountable. There's a gentleman by the name of Luis Agostini, and he is a spokesperson for the Chicago Police Department, and he explains away their refusal to prevent officers from using batons and spray and the like against peaceful protesters this way. He says, this change was rejected because it's already covered in other existing policy and the department policy says that, quote, force used in response to a person's lawful exercise of First Amendment right is protected speech, lawful, dis lawful demonstrations in observing or filming police activity or criticizing a department member is prohibited. So he's saying that there's already policy that says officers can't mess with you when you're doing that. However, if a demonstration is peaceful and a lawful expression of First Amendment rights, then there will be no use of force because use of force is prohibited. But what he wants you to know is that if there is a peaceful protest and it's not lawful in the eyes of the department, then they'll be using their batons, their spray, and their long-range acoustic devices. If it's peaceful, but it's unlawful. For instance, let's say there's a group of folks and they come out and they do a uh, disperse order, and they say that now, you know, you got to go, and if you don't go and you remain, it's um, an unlawful assembly. So now you see you're very peaceful, but they've deemed this gathering an unlawful assembly, so you get the pepper spray and the long-range acoustic device used against you. And they're not willing to um, change any of that stuff. So it's very important to understand the lingo, and that's why it's so important, and that's why I think they won't do it, is to have someone who's retired, who speaks the lingo, who understands company speak when they hear it, to ask those kinds of questions and to to follow up in a way that might be helpful to the community because they don't know. They don't know police code talk when they hear it. And so a lot of what I do, you know, week to week when I come to you here on my YouTube channel as well as Facebook, as well as Instagram, as well as my podcast, Sergeant Dorsey Speaks, is to help you better understand the way police talk, the way administrators talk so that you'll know when they're trying to pull a quick one on you, okay? Um, 
slide over to Philadelphia real quick. There's a former police officer over there by the name of Eric Rush. He's 33 years old. And back in 2017, um, he was fired uh, after he was involved in a shooting of a, uh, a black man. Now, what happened is that um, this black man, 25-year-old Dennis Plowden, had been involved in a, in a car chase. I don't know why he didn't stop when this officer Rush tried to pull him over, but he didn't stop. There was a car chase, and ultimately there was a car crash. It was reported that Dennis Plowden died as a result of the car crash. So you have the police department, again, crafting a narrative, the version that they want told, because I say all the time when an officer kills you, there's only one version to tell, theirs. And because great deference is given to their version, their version, the police department's version, not a whole lot happens. And so for the longest, Eric Rush, 33 years old, on the Philadelphia Police Department had crafted a story. And what he said is that Plowden had died as a result of this traffic collision. Well, we now know that that's not true. The district attorney over there, Larry Krasner, I believe is his name, uh, has had an opportunity to look at some evidence and realizes that it doesn't sync up with the version that um, Eric Rausch had given. And we now know that when Roush Rush responded to, this, to the scene of the uh, traffic collision, they said that within six to eight seconds of him exiting his vehicle, he fired his gun. None of the other officers that were present during this police chase felt a need, uh, no immediate defense of their life or Rush's life. They didn't fire, but Rush did. And as a result of that, um, Plowden was um, ultimately killed. Now, when Dennis got out of the car after this accident, they said he was a little dazed. As you might imagine, if you hit a pole or a tree and your car is all jacked up, you're shaken up. And so when he got out of the car, he was a little disoriented and may or may not have been following what the officers were telling him perfectly, but he was doing his best. And at some point, he went and sat down on the sidewalk, according to the article, and put his hands up over his head. And when he put his hands up over his head is when Rosh fired um, fired shots at him. And one of the one of the rounds went through his finger and then ultimately through his, I guess, face or head or something. And that's how they were able to determine uh, after a lengthy investigation that uh, this officer lied and that actually Mr. Plowden was uh, doing his best to comply. Rush uh, was fired. Um, in 2018, this incident happened in 2017. He was fired in 2018, and now he has just been charged in the murder of Dennis Plowden, and there is a trial set for next year, April 2021. In the case of Jonathan Price, the uh, black man over in Wolf City, Texas, who was buried last weekend after an encounter with a six-month-on-the-job police officer, Sean Lucas, well, Jonathan had been responding, assisting in a domestic dispute. I think it was a guy assaulting a woman, and he was intervening, and everything was pretty much said and done by the time six-month officer Sean Lucas shows up. And then Sean Lucas decides that he thinks a couple of different stories going around because, again, Jonathan is dead, and so he's crafting a story, and he'll well, he'll stick to it once he finds out which story he wants to tell, but he's got a couple of different versions. One is that he thought Jonathan was uh, drunk, intoxicated, and so he wanted to have a, have a conversation with Jonathan about that. 
Another version is that Jonathan, according to the officer, the officer believed that Jonathan was reaching for his taser. Now, I don't know why he would believe that, but that's what he says. And if that's what he believed, it's very difficult for anyone else to argue what's in his head. So he says that Jonathan may have been intoxicated. He thinks he was reaching for his taser, and that's why he wound up shooting him. So what we now know, because this was an easy fix, Sean Lucas was a um, probationary officer, six months on the job, wasn't tenured, did not have the same protections as a officer who's been with the department longer, obviously. And I, I think this is a, a small department, too. I think I want to get my stories mixed up, but I think this may be, um, I'll come back and tell you, I think it's only like six officers on the whole doggone department. So, you know, when you think police department, you think, you know, like, well, everybody's not LAPD in New York, but, you know, you don't think six officers, <laughs> right? But anyway, now we know that, you know, this, this, this Sean Lucas, he was just the jackass that there were many residents in the in the short six months that he had been on the police department in Wolf City who were complaining, who is this guy? Where did they find him? Black and white. In the short time that he had been a police officer, there were uh, folks who were saying, hey, look out for this guy because, you know, he's got a hair trigger and um, he's being extra aggressive with folks for no doggone reason. Now, he said he thought Jonathan was intoxicated, so I think that's his go-to thing because there was a 65-year-old black man, a resident of uh, Wolf City, who everybody knows. His name is James Alton Brown, and he was out walking one day. He has a slight limp, and Officer Lucas decided to start following behind him in his police car, and he followed behind him and says for about a quarter mile, a quarter mile, this man is walking with a damn limp, so you know he wasn't moving fast. You can imagine how long it took him to cover a quarter mile, but this officer is just following him, just following him, following him, watching him, probably trying to craft a story, a narrative, a reason to stop him, and he said he thought he was drunk because he had a bit of a limp at 65, starting to see a pattern with this Sean Lucas. So he stopped 65-year-old James, and James says, you know, what the hell, what's wrong with you? I'm not drunk, I'm, I'm trying to get wherever it is I'm trying to get, why are you messing with me? And then, you know, he put hands on him, and he did that thing that police officers do when they put hands on you. You must go to jail. So he arrested him for resisting arrest as well as public intoxication. This is Sean Lucas. Now, I don't know whether or not Mr. Brown filed a personnel complaint when this thing happened. This is another reason why I'm often encouraging you when you do have an encounter and you know it's BS to create a paper trail have to create a paper trail so that when something happens that gets national attention, and this is national now because he's killed Jonathan Price, the department can't say, well, we've never had any complaints. We don't know anything about this guy uh, involved in police misconduct because those of you who have been involved with this officer have been calling and making complaints, even if they choose to ignore it. You still need to create a paper trail. Don't make a phone call. Create a paper trail. And when you write a letter, you don't write it to one person. You write it to everybody up and down that officer's chain of command. You start at the top with the police chief. If they have a civilian review board, and this is a six-member department, so there's probably one person who, who's handling everything. He's probably the chief, the mayor, and the damn uh, sheriff. I don't know. 
but still create a paper trail is very important and keep a copy of whatever documentation you send for yourself. But we know that this Sean Lucas was out of control. And so he arrested poor Mr. Brown, 65 years old. The charges for the um, drunken public, of course, you know, were dismissed because it was bogus. But Mr. Brown, who's probably on a fixed income, is now still fighting the resisting arrest charge. So that means he's either got to get a public defender who may or may not try to get him to just plead to anything because you're 65 years old and you're not going to get in any more trouble. You just want this to be gone and over with. But now he's in the system, right? Or he's going to have to spend money to go get an attorney to actually fight it. Money he probably does not have and something that did not even need to happen. And so why um, the police chief over there on Wolf City did not check Sean Lucas early on is beyond me. He sits in jail now on a million-dollar bail for the fatal shooting of Jonathan Price. So I think it's important to note that the attorney who is representing Sean Lucas in this particular case is the same attorney who represented Amber Geiger in the fatal shooting of Botham Jean. So I don't know if uh, he's doing this uh, pro bono or if, you know, because this is another high profile case, you know, you have attorneys who chase high profile cases to defend, just like you have civil rights attorneys who chase high profile cases to go to money court. So the, uh, the attorney represented Amber Geiger. His name is Robert Rogers, and he is uh, representing Sean Lucas. So that's that. Um, my good buddy Daniel Cameron is still trying to prevent grand jurors over in Kentucky from speaking out about the information that he did or did not give to them during their uh, review of the Breonna Taylor incident. You know, he tried to, Daniel Cameron, give the inference that somehow he had nothing to do with what the grand jury had to say. He just presented the evidence and they came up with a non-indictment, right, of the other two. Well, they didn't even consider the other two because he said their involvement was justified. They were uh, returning fire after they had been fired upon first by Kenneth Walker, the boyfriend. And so don't even worry about that. But um, let's talk about Officer Brett Hankinson, another one who was not tenured. Uh, an easy fix, an easy sacrificial lamb. Let's talk about him firing rounds into the good white neighbor's house. And that's the only thing that he wanted the grand jurors to focus on. And so now they're out and they're hearing and they're like, hey, hold up. Let me tell you what really went on. And Daniel Cameron is doing his level best. He's been firing off briefs and motions to prevent them from talking under the guise of um, he wants to protect the sanctity of grand jury system and the secrecy that surrounds it, because if he doesn't fight to protect that, then it can be uh, irreparably harmed. That's his story. That's his version. That's his stalling tactic for right now. So we'll see what happens. I will um, let you know if there's anything more to report on whether or not he's Daniel Cameron is successful in keeping this information from uh, being discussed. One of the things that did come out is that we know that one of the officers who was involved in the affidavit, the search warrant that was given to the judge, actually lied on the affidavit. Now the officer says, well, you know, 
I maybe could have worded it different. I, I didn't really lie. I just, maybe I could have worded it a little bit better for the judge. And the judge is not happy about it because now the judge says that had she known then what she knows now, she would not have uh, given that no-knock warrant in the first place. So there's a lot of shenanigans that's going on within that department, circling of the wagons, trying to figure out a way to minimize and mitigate bad behavior and throw the public off with company speak double talk on the part of everybody involved. Real briefly, uh, you know, over in Dallas, police chief, female black, you, Renee Hall, uh, submitted her resignation letter. Uh, and shortly after that, I now know that Carmen Best, uh, the female black police chief over in Seattle, has also been run out on a rail. She wasn't getting the support that she needed, and she didn't have a system that she was support system that she was able to bring in with her to make sure that she did well and so she's like I'm out of here I don't need this she spent 28 years on that police department and so she too um, is gone by the wayside over in Vallejo Vallejo Police Department you've heard me talk about the fatal 14 those are 14 police officers who've been involved in multiple deadly uses of force or just uses of force. Well, one of them has just now been fired, Ryan McMahon. He has a twin brother who's still on the Vallejo Police Department who is also one of the fatal 14. Ryan McMahon was the officer involved in the fatal shooting of Ronnell Foster back in 2017, a year before Willie McCoy was shot and killed by Vallejo Police Department. Ryan McMahon, Officer Ryan McMahon. Um, Ryan McMahon was one of six officers in the Willie McCoy shooting was the only officer involved in the fatal shooting of Ronnell Foster. And what happened with Ronnell Foster, if you don't know, he was riding his bike one night, and I think he didn't have a light on it. And so Ryan McMahon saw him, and he says that I'm going to have to teach this um, young man a lesson. Now, I don't know if he said young man, but he said, I'm going to teach him a lesson. And so he went in pursuit of Ronnell, and he chased him back behind a building uh, after several blocks. And, of course, he had a camera, but he didn't turn it on until after the education about riding with a, without a light on your bike was over. And when he turned his camera on, Ronnell was dead. The one version that we were given was the one Ryan McMahon put forth, which is that Ronnell Foster was reaching for his flashlight, his gun, his leg. He was in fear, so he shot and killed him. And so, um, Clearly, there was a problem with that version because the family received $5.7 million. And now, in addition to the family having a settlement from the city, Ryan McMahon has been fired. Still waiting to hear about what the outcome is going to be in terms of the Willie McCoy shooting. Thank you for listening. This segment is almost out of time. So... We'll finish her up on another segment.